Hi, this is Mike Livermore, and with me today is Itai Rabinowicz, uh, who's an assistant professor at the Faculty of Medicine of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Uh, hi, Itai, welcome. Hi, hello, thank you very much. So today we're going to be talking again about some of the themes of intelligence and artificial intelligence that are being explored in the ICA-4, and, um, and in particular, Itai's research and, and thinking in the area of synthetic biology as it relates to brains and, and to intelligence. So this should be a, a fascinating conversation. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. But just to maybe get us started, uh, Itai, what, what brought you to your interests in these, uh, in these areas, uh, both kind of in the, in the brain and neuroscience and, and to the fields of synthetic biology and, and related disciplines? So I have to say it took me a while to figure out uh, what I'm interested in. And I actually started off by studying industrial engineering, which is a discipline of engineering. And the reason I did that was because I was really interested in how big systems work, how you can organize them, make them work even better. And while I was doing that, I gradually realized that I was more interested in something more academic, maybe a little bit more abstract. Um, and I gradually got interested in the brain as a topic. Uh, so after I was done uh, with that, I moved on to do a PhD in neuroscience. Um, and even then, it was still very theoretical work. It was uh, computer simulations, mathematical modeling, things like that. And when I started my postdoc, I did another little switch and moved to the bench. So I started doing some more experimental work hmm. and I decided to focus on this little creature called C. elegans, which is a tiny little nematode worm. Um, it has a relatively simple nervous system, something I thought I could handle, and uh, to start asking questions about the real thing. Um, and while I was doing that, I heard about synthetic biology for the first time and I got really, really excited. Synthetic biology is this emerging field that kind of brings together engineering and biology, sort of like myself. Mm -hmm. And um, once I heard about it, I really got very, very interested, very passionately interested in both of these worlds, in synthetic biology and neurobiology, how they could probably go together. Uh, most of synthetic biology to this day is focusing on single cells, on bacteria, on yeast, or maybe even mammalian cells, but they're very isolated cells per se. And I, as a neurobiologist, was interested in trying to see if we can go up to the, to the whole animal level and play around with the nervous system, change connections within the nervous system, and try to cause animals to behave a bit differently and in this way, um, like many people do in synthetic biology, first of all, you gain some kind of understanding through building, because once you build a system, you really understand it in a very different way from just looking at a system and trying to figure out what it does. And also, there are all kinds of uh, futuristic kind of applications that you can think about that are relevant for this and also are, could be very exciting. Great. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating potential area. Um, so in a couple of p papers, you've explored this idea that maybe we can kind of get on the table a little bit of what I, what I take to be forward engineering the brain as, as, as you, as you, as you express it and, and the difference between that proposal um, that you've, that you've articulated versus, you know, what we could kind of think of as reverse engineering the brain, which is something that, that is done and in, in has been done for some time in other domains and, and has been useful. So, so, so what is this idea of forward engineering as applied to the brain and, and how is it distinct from, you know, this, this idea of reverse engineering in this context? Yeah, so in neuroscience and a lot of my own work it can be considered as a kind of reverse engineering. So you're looking at a given uh, system, a given brain. In my case, it's C. elegans, but it could be any other brain. And you're, you're, you have some kind of phenomenon. You see that, you know, worms behave in such and such a way, or they do such and such things. And you can also see that their brain is wired in a certain way. And then you ask, okay, given that this is what the system looks like, how does it actually do uh, this stuff? 
And you start asking, okay, maybe this neuron that goes there is telling the other neuron that, you know, so-and-so has to do the other thing. And you do all kinds of experiments. You say, okay, let's eliminate that neuron. Let's try and do, you know, block what it's doing. And that's how you gradually build up your understanding of what's going on in the system. You take something and it's reverse engineering because you're trying to kind of, if you were to engineer that thing, where, what, where would you go? You have the end product instead of starting from scratch and you, try, and you go back and try to understand how it got that way and how it is working. And forward engineering is kind of the opposite. It's kind of the more natural way. It's where you start with, uh, with the parts and you build, put them together in order to build a system that does something for you. And if it's when we're talking about the brain or biology in general, then the idea is to say, okay, I want to end up with a, a nematode that does this or that or a bacteria that can produce something new. How do I do that out of the parts that I, I, I'm familiar with? So in the brain, we have neurons and synaptic connections. Uh, how can I hook up different neurons in the worm's brain to cause the worm to do this kind of new behavior? So that's what I would consider more kind of a forward engineering approach. Hmm. Where you're kind of directly intervening in the system in, in, in intentional ways to see what happens. Yeah, you're, you're actually causing the system to do something rather than saying, okay, I ha I, it's given that this system is doing that thing, how is it doing it? Right. So, so just to kind of contextualize the, the, this idea, um, and I think there's a lot of interesting kind of technical questions and, and broader kind of societal and uh, ethical technological questions. But again, just to provide some context, it seems as though we that that scientists and, and industry to a certain extent is engaged in this forward engineering project, um, forward engineering of the brain uh, project in some other context or some slightly different context. So, for example, again, in your work, uh, in some of your papers, you mention uh, artificial neural networks as um, you know, as, as, a, as obviously an important research paradigm that's been around for some time. And that seems like it has elements of this forward engineering where we're building something that's roughly based on the brain, at least in a, um, in a metaphorical sense, uh, and, then, and then seeing what happens as we build it, try to build it to, to do things in the world. Um, do you see that research agenda as akin to what you're doing? And are there, you know, is it, can, can that inform this process of, of synthetic neurobiology or are these really just kind of distinct research programs that maybe touch on each other a little bit but don't um, aren't necessarily deeply intertwined so I I my vision is something that's kind of uh, you know taking together all these things so looking at reverse engineering but also at this kind of let's call it modeling uh, mm -hmm. work or in, in silico kind of work where you where you're actually doing it's true that modeling work is a type of forward engineering but it's all on paper or on the computer and i definitely see a strong interaction and synergy between uh doing it you know just on on paper and actually building a real biological system that does what that's supposed to do what you expect it to do it often it doesn't hmm. so um I think all of these components can work very nicely together. They don't necessarily have to exclude each other or compete with each other. And actually, I think that synthetic biology in general, and specifically neurosynthetic biology, could benefit a lot from computer-aided design, like any type of engineering where you actually first run it through the computer, and only then you actually build the whatever you're building. So also, ultimately, I can envision you know a computer person sitting inside of the screen designing these neural networks and then actually implementing them in a real live animal. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And, and you, you, also, you also mentioned, I think, a, a related line of research, which is this in vitro work on neural structure, kind of these brain organoids that uh, scientists have developed to, um, to, to study the brain. I think there's, there's some applications in medical research, maybe explain what these, these organoids are and, again, how that line of research potentially relates back to, to, to what you're proposing. 
So again, so this is another kind of angle. It's all kind of angles that are all heading, all heading the, the, the same, uh, you know, target. Uh, so in this case, instead of looking at an animal that, you know, was born and grew and everything, uh, it is possible today to kind of grow just parts of an animal. So real biological animals. So you can start with, with cells that are stem cells and you can cause them to differentiate in specific ways so they become cells that you're interested in. And you can actually, I, I've never done anything like this, but I, I know that people do it. You can actually real, really design, uh, you know, even a brain, a kind of, it's not a 100% uh, you know, living brain or it doesn't do everything that a real brain does. But if you take the right kind of cells and put them together in the right, right kind of way, sometimes they would even self-assemble into something resembling a little bit uh, a kind of brain. And once you have these kind of things, which are on the one hand biological, they're built from biological stuff, from cells, uh, but the way they happen to assemble uh, was, was deeply, uh, you know, it, it, ha it, was, it involved a lot of intervention and mm -hmm. a lot of pre-specification. Uh, but ultimately you get this kind of biological thing and you can build things into it. So also here you can decide how much uh, design you put into it, how much do you let it just kind of self-organize. Uh, so that's another kind of intermediate um, thing you can do. It's not a complete animal, it's not a behaving animal necessarily, but it could you know, integrate into an animal. Um, so in this respect, it's kind of from the same family. Hmm. And so, so then kind of putting this all together, um, the proposal that you've, you've envisioned here is, it's distinct from the, the organoid idea, which is, I, I'm literally picturing in my mind, little tiny brains floating in a Petri dish. I don't know if that's an accurate. It's very accurate. <laughs> uh, picture. And so you've got the little brains in a Petri dish. You know, we can imagine a, a neural network where we could, um, that's an artificial neural network that's sitting on a computer that, you know, we know what all the connections are just because it is on, essentially on paper. Uh, you know, obviously it's way too big to put on a piece of paper, but it's, it's sitting on a computer. We can feed it inputs. We can see what the outputs are. Um, and what your proposal, as I take it, is to focus on the, organi the organism, right? That we're going to have something like a, a little worm and then make changes that are oriented towards affecting the brain. And specifically, I, I, I take your idea to be affecting the connectome, right? The connections in the brain, not uh, say giving Prozac to the uh, to the little C. elegans. Um, rather, the idea is to actually affect the, um, the 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 neural wiring, and then see how that affects the animal's behavior or or functioning or or something along those lines. Yes, and one important uh, thing that I'm really I mean not everyone necessarily agrees with me, but I think the autonomy of the system is very important to me at least. So. Hmm. I'm, de I'm designing maybe the system or someone is designing the system. And so in that respect, it's not 100% autonomous. But once you let it go, it, can, it grows into what you thought it would, do, would, it would grow. And then it does what it does not without your intervention. So it grows by itself and it becomes, you know, the wiring goes in certain ways that you design. Not like, for instance, the organoid where you need to. Maybe some t someday you won't need to intervene at, for, at every step, but still the, the, the animal itself has its genet genome and it grows according to that, to these instructions. And even when it's behaving, when it's matured and everything, everything is autonomous. So you don't need to give it orders from the outside. You don't need to deliver Prozac or anything else. The way it is organized it determines how it actually acts and what it does. And I'm fascinated by the idea of, it, of the system doing this on its own, autonomously. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe just to, to make this a little bit more concrete, we could, it sounds like an incredibly difficult thing, you know, picturing this little tiny worm and, and how do you get in there and actually change around the, the neural wiring. And so, uh, again, in, in some of your work, it seems that there are kind of th several different categories of interventions that one can envision. Um, one that I thought was just very interesting and it didn't occur to me at all when, when I first came across the idea was, was experience. That in a sense, you can 
you can train uh, when you when you engage in training of different kinds you are affecting the connectome um, you're artificially affecting the connectome that's obviously a very light touch approach uh, but that is a way of artificially affecting i don't know if artificial is the right word there but having an intervention um, that uh, causally changes the connectome potentially in predictable ways uh, and then you could explore um, you know, over time, what the what the consequences of that intervention are um, is that is that what you're most interested in is the is that is the training model or um, are there other approaches that you're that you're more you know focused on? So I'm actually that's what I'm least interested in <laughs> <laughs> because you know people have been doing this for I mean education everything we do is about this and we don't even care what what it does to the connectome we just want the end behavior right. It's a black box I, kind of in the middle. Yeah, and I'm actually more to the extreme of controlling everything from the biology. So from the connect, starting from the connectome itself, the, con the map of connectivity of neurons. So saying, I have this neural circuit, and I think that if I connect now neuron A, if I add the connection between neuron A and B, now the animal is going to behave in this specific way, in this new way, or change its behavior in a certain way. And I actually do that. So I actually add a new connection between A and B, and then I can see what the animal is doing, mm -hmm. how it changes its behavior. And so how do you actually make, how do you do that? Like, how does one in the world go about making a connection between neuron A and neuron B when one didn't exist before? Okay, so that's a, that, that's a very technical question, but I really want to share it with you. Yeah, very so, interesting. So um, basically, neurons are connected by synapses, which are just, you know, little devices that allow neurons to send electrical signals or chemical signals one to the other. And uh, there are several types of connections. One is a chemical synapse. I, I won't go into the very fine details. Uh, and another one is electrical synapses. Now the chemical synapses, they're composed of hundreds of different proteins. It's a very, very complex machine and uh, very, very elaborate. And it's probably pretty hard to try to build something like that from scratch. And we don't know en enough about how uh, synapses are, um, you know, even in a normal natural nervous system, how are they specified? How does the neuron A know that it's supposed to connect to neuron B? What is the direct signal, etc.? We don't know enough. Once we know more about that, it will be easier to just tell the nervous system to grow a new chemical synapse between these specific neurons, and that's it. So when we get to that point, that will be a very nice solution. But right now, um, what I'm doing is taking advantage of a different type of synapse, synapse, which is called an electrical synapse. And in this case, you can imagine two neurons. They have these long processes going out of them. And uh, one neuron has this protein that, that builds a little channel in its membrane. And the other neuron has a similar protein that builds another half channel in its, in its membrane. And when two of those half channels come together, they form a kind of complete physical channel between the two neurons that allows electrical charge, for example, to pass between those neurons. So in this way, there's this kind of physical device that enables neurons to communicate. And we're taking advantage of this. We know what these proteins are. And we found out that if we you know, express them artificially, these specific proteins, they're called connexins, from the word connection, if you express this protein called connexin in two neurons of your choice in C. elegans, then you can get this new, you can form this new electrical synapse between those two neurons specifically and get them to talk to each other. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's amazing. And it can be done on a pretty fine grained scale, it sounds like. Yeah, so in worms, we can actually control uh, which neurons express what we want. So we can direct the expression very, very precisely. And all of this do is done molecularly. So we build this piece of DNA that has the code for this protein that we're talking about. And it has a little code that tells us where to go, which neuron to express in. And uh, in C. elegans, uh, the common way to, to add new DNA material into the worm is to just inject it mm. into the gonads where the future eggs are going to be formed. And this DNA kind of gets incorporated into the nucleus and then it goes on to the uh, progeny and it, it's heritable. So you get worms, you, you get generations of worms that have this new g DNA in them. So in our case, they have these new synapses in them. Hmm. 
That's fascinating. And so and that raises a, a kind of a side issue, but one that I, I personally find fascinating, and, and there's a couple of related questions here. But, but So one is the degree to which DNA here, so the relationship between DNA and, and the connectome, basically. Right? So that when, when a C. elegans or, or a person, for that matter, is born, or gestates, I guess, you know, a connectome is being, is being generated. Right. When as soon as there's a kind of a living organism, there's some connectome, presumably. And one of the things that just struck strikes me, I've always kind of just been puzzled by. It's kind of a naive question, but the you know the the connectome is incredibly rich, information dense. It's, there's there's staggering numbers of these connections in human beings, even in C. elegans. What there's three hundred odd neurons in C. elegans. Right, and then and and um, you know, and then obviously a larger number of how many, how many, roughly how many connections are there in the Cialis? Several brain? thousand connections, about seven thousand or so. Got it. So a manageable number, right? Human human brains have you know what is it trillions of synapses? Yeah. So um, and obviously those connections are changing over time as we experience, and I guess that would be presumably true for C. elegans, although I don't know. Um, how much of the, I mean, how, how is it that, you know, these minor, you know, that the DNA um, is able to construct, you know, has to construct everything in our bodies, our hearts and everything else, and at the same time construct this, like, working connectome that seems like it just has a staggering amount of information in it? Yeah, so that's an amazing question, and it's the million-dollar question. And uh, the, you know, people used to think that everything is encoded in the genome. So you read the genome and you know everything. But the genome is just, you know, like a starting point. It tells you where you, where you start. And from there on, there's a whole enormous chain reaction of events. Some of them are mechanical. Some of them have to do with chemical signaling that goes on between different parts of the developing body. Some of them have to do with the environmental effects. And so... The, the, I think the clearest way to think about it is to really think of a chain reaction. So you, you have a starting point, a very complex starting point, and from there on the whole thing evolves. And in the same species, some of the evolution is very similar. So they have a very similar starting point, they go through very similar processes during development, and so you get different, very different people, but the, the basic brain structure is similar. It's a human brain structure. Uh, but within the structure, there's a lot of variation, of course. And that has to do with all kinds of random events that happen while during development or due to experience, specific experiences that the specific person encountered, etc. Uh, so the relation between DNA and the connectome is really, really convoluted and very indirect. But in this case, we're kind of bypassing this whole thing. We're going directly to a very, very specific thing a very specific connection, a very specific protein that does something very, very particular, mm-hmm. and we're targeting that. So we're kind of, you know, skipping the whole thing, the whole process, and just going directly to the end result. Oh, that, that's very interesting. Let me see if I can make an analogy. It's probably a bad analogy, but, you know, imagine like a, you know, there's some, like a simple computer program somehow that creates an extremely complex output um, which can happen, right? You can have simple, a few lines of code that creates a very complex output, maybe with, with some random noise inputs or something like that, that that can disturb it. And then, and what you're doing is you have that already in place and the relationship between that computer code and the complex output is like kind of complicated and maybe not fully understood. And then you add another little bit of code at the end that says, okay, after you've made this really complex <laughs> object, make a connection between point A and point B. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or just type hello world or something. Right, right, yeah. right, right. Kind of something simple that you append. Yeah, that, that, that's really interesting. And so what kind of, I mean, this just springs off of that, but like how much rewiring can you do that way? Um, is, it, is it something that's kind of limited in principle? Or could you say, all right, after the worm's built, you know, here's my little addendum code, and we're going to really substantially re- rewire this thing? Yeah, so I think the whole approach of, of rewiring worms and doing all the synthetic biology in worms is just at its very, very, very early days. And this uh, electrical synaptic solution is just, you know, very primitive first kind of step. 
but even and I do I really envision that in the future we could probably really direct maybe intervene earlier and early in the process of of nervous system formation mm-hmm. and connectome genesis and then we are much you know we're much more involved and we can direct things uh, we can do things much in a much more massive way but even now with this kind of uh, you know loophole thing that we've entered um, we are still able to uh, make several different connections at the same time. We can use different uh, variants of this connection protein so they don't interfere with each other. Uh, one limitation is that the neurons have to be physically in, in close proximity to start with. So not every, you can't really pair between every you know, pair of neurons because some of them just don't touch each other. So no matter what kind of membranes, what kind of channels you express there, they will never meet. So that's a, that's a restriction. It still leaves a lot, a lot of neurons that you can work with, neuron pairs to work with. Um, and the interesting thing is that it's, you know, you can do all kinds of variations also on the theme. So you can take these original connections uh, and start maybe engineering them to have new properties. So for instance, there's this recent paper that, that's uh, a preprint of a paper from a, a different group where they've actually engineered the connections not to interact with themselves. So they, they have two, cla- two types of connections they've engineered, and only when both of them meet, they form uh, an electrical synapse. But when each type mm. is on its own, it doesn't do anything. And that's very important because if you want to hook up uh, two populations of neurons, and you just want the interaction between the two populations and not within, then you can get that with these kinds of engineered connections. So you can imagine that gradually things will develop and become more complex and you can, you, you will have, the toolbox will, become, will grow and grow and we'll have more options. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's, and it's, it just sounds like the kind of thing that smart people can make progress on, um, kind of smart engineering people and, and smart kind of, it's almost like algorithmic design stuff. Yeah, um, and it's really fun, so. That, that always helps too, right? Yeah. Um, so just, you know, again, this is just speaks to me, not, I don't know much about this, but, you know, we, we've mapped the, the C. elegans um, connectome, I guess, is one of the, one of the, one of, if not the only biological connectome that we have, you know, a, a pretty complete understanding of. There's this 304 neurons. Is there a lot of variation within the, the, the C. elegans uh, elegans population in terms of the connectomes. They all have exactly, I just think it's fascinating, they all have exactly 304 neurons. 302. Um, is, oh, 302, okay, 302 yeah. neurons. <laughs> but that's what it is, it's 302. Nobody, none of them have 303, none of them have 301. Yeah. It's not an average of 302, it's exactly 302, yeah. right? That's, I mean, that just strikes me as bizarre and interesting. And then, um, and then the, I guess the question is, you know, you can have so several thousand connections between these neurons, and how much variation is there in that connectome? I mean, do they all come out with exactly the same connectome or, you know, 90% of the synapses are the same? Like, what, what, is the, what is the story there? So originally when the connectome was mapped, that was in the 80s. And it was like a 10-year project. It was something crazy. People had to, they did all these electron microscopy Im, uh, images. And then they had to manually trace all the parts they see in all these hundreds or thousands of micrographs. And it took them a lot of time. And it was just based on one worm, maybe one and a half. So it was very hard to say anything about right, you know, the population right. level. But they had all kinds of rough estimates. And uh, I think then they thought it was like maybe a 5% deviation between worms. I don't even remember how they got to that figure. But only recently, uh, there was a new paper that came out where they did like eight worms. Mm. And there you can really ask those questions. So the amount of variation is incredible, much, much more than we ever imagined. Mm. Uh, so uh, the way it's arranged is like there, there seems to be like this core connectome, which is the same for all those worms, at least those eight worms, probably m- many more. And then on top of this core, there are all kinds of, again, variations. Maybe they're random, maybe they're experience dependent. It's still hard to say. Mm. And it's also, you know, even our connectome as humans, I mean, again, you have those major pathways in the brain that are similar and you can find them anywhere, but then you have all those specific things that are more personal and they vary 
immensely between individuals. Um, this is fascinating. And so, and what, so, and then within these eight worms, <laughs> are there a lot of behavioral differences between them? So given that there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a, we've got this core, and then on top of the core, there's lots of variation in terms of the connections. Does that translate into lots of behavioral differences? Or is it that we have worms that are acting essentially identically, but their, but their synaptic structure is quite different from each other? And does that mean that they're instantiating the behaviors, the same behaviors differently in, in terms of the structure? Or maybe some of the structure is like irrelevant? Like what, what do we, can we, do we know any of this stuff? Or are these all just kind of open questions? Yeah, so I guess the last several years have been like the age of individuality in worms. So mm. it, it, you see that in the connectome, and there's also been a nice work on behavior uh, by Shai Stern at the, when he was at the Corey Barkman lab. And he showed uh, very big differences, behavioral differences, all along development between individuals, even if they're, you know, clonal. In C. elegans, many of the worms are hermaphrodites, so they have both sperm and egg, and they mm. kind of just, you know, clone themselves almost. Mm. So, of course, there are all kinds, even with these uh, uh, worms, you have all kinds of variations because of heterozygotic uh, genes, etc. But um, even within these kind of clone, so to speak, of worms, you can still see very big differences in behavior, even in simple behaviors. Now, to link these to the connectomes is a bit complicated, but I'm sure that at some point we will be able to kind of see, you know, specific differences between individuals, at least specific synapses that are slightly different between individuals and to see a correlated behavioral difference between them. Mm. Well, this is where your work could be potentially really interesting, right? Is that you can intentionally change the exactly. synapses. Exactly. I can show a causative, I can show a causative role for their synaptic changes, not just, you know, correlate them. Yeah. One of the... Tell me if this is a, a challenge or a, I don't know if it's a limitation, but just a kind of design challenge. It seems that there may be, I think of brains as being pretty plastic. I don't know if that's true in, in C. elegans, but they, they, they change. And so, you know, again, I'm, I'm no expert in <laughs> stretch the imagination, but my understanding is, for example, if you have a brain, at least for certain brain injuries, um, uh, like a stroke, that you know, that could impair your, your, your functioning in some ways, your speech or your walking or some other functioning. But then over time, as you, as you retrain and, 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 and engage in physical therapy and the like, uh, different parts of the brain will, will, because it's plastic, will kind of adapt. And that the part of the brain that maybe isn't functioning as well anymore, um, the, you know, what was, what was done there will be done somewhere else, right? The brain can change, basically. Um, and, and relearn certain behaviors and so on. So I guess the question, so that strikes me as, you know, it's a pretty resilient thing. And so one, I guess the, the question vis-a-vis -vis the interventions that you're contemplating is, you know, I can imagine a situation that's like, okay, we're going to rewire, you know, synapse A and B that isn't, you know, that's, that's not kind of part of the programming here. But then when that happens, over time, the worm rewires other parts of its brain to kind of undo the um the change that you put in is that is that something you have to worry about is that interesting or is that just uh you know we'll deal with it when it comes up kind of thing so that's a really great point and um i've never actually really seriously dealt with it i have seen i mean when i do uh i have many examples of engineering new synapses and and coming up with new behaviors and the behaviors seem to persist it's not like the worms are kind of learning to bypass them or, or you know, cancel them or something. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't, I, but I haven't really, and it's one of the things I need to do, is to see how these additional synapses, what kind of changes are happening in the rest of the circuits when such additional synapses are added. But I can, I, I, I have done research, kind of the opposite research. So on the one hand, I'm, I'm always interested to see how far we can push the worms. What are the limits of the worms in their abilities? So, for instance, uh, when you mentioned resilience and, you know, the ability of the, the brain to recover from injury. So one uh, very nice example is when people, for instance, lose their sense of vision. Mm -hmm. 
and they they're known to have you know enhanced hearing or touch and this part of it could be due to you know more attention given to those other senses but there's also a lot of evidence uh, showing that the brain itself is reorganizing and adjusting to these different you know to the loss of a certain input and then other modalities become strengthened etc so i asked whether in worms we also can find something like that and um, worms don't see or hear in the first place but they do have a good sense of smell and a good sense of touch and other senses so i took worms that that don't have a sense of touch and i checked to see how they're doing in sen with smell mm -hmm. so initially when i compared uh, normal worms with worms without touch I, I didn't seem to see any difference but then i realized that I, what i need to do is to check what happens with very dilute smells things that are barely smellable to a normal worm and that's because even blind people it's not like they hear a normal voice super loud it's just right. the very soft very voices right. so the same thing happened with worms when i really mm. diluted the smell to the level that a normal worm would not detect it the worms that couldn't sense touch were able to still you know, respond to it, and mm. if, if it was an attractive smell, to move towards it, etc. And the nice thing about worms is you can actually see at the at the very fine neuronal or molecular level what's going on, mm. because we don't know a lot. We know that there's cortical reorganization in blind people, but we can't really say what's going, what's actually going on there. Right, right. Uh, so it turns out that a worms normally have a weaker sense of smell than they could. So the sense of touch is actually suppressing the sense of smell to some extent. And when they lose touch, then the sense of smell can, you know, go back to its full potential. That was one interesting thing. That's, yeah, again, totally, totally fascinating. So in theory, again, it would depend on the actual connections, I guess, and, and the kind of practicalities. But in theory, you could insert DNA that would, you know, supercharge the sense of smell of you know of, of a certain population of worms right and actually during i mean when we were doing this research we actually did that because we found mm -hmm. out what was the signal that was going on from the touch neurons to the to the smell circuits and when we canceled the signal we got worms super worms they they didn't lose mm -hmm. their sense of touch but they still were super smellers mm -hmm. and then you can ask uh, you know what are they what's the cost of, is there any cost for right. that right well there so, has to be almost because evolution would seem to have finely tuned these different senses right. yeah so you know though you can wave your hands and say well maybe the nervous system needs to balance all the information <laughs> it's receiving and right. you know it can't deal with so much at the same time uh but we haven't never we've never got to test you know really experimentally what is the cost of being a superworm. <laughs> and it's <laughs> Yeah, Another related project I have to mention in this, because it's yeah. even more related to the synapses, is we looked at worms that have lo that you know we just killed a certain neuron in those worms, and this uh, killing caused the worms to be less efficient in smelling. So they weren't as good as normal worms in detecting smells, moving towards them, etc. And then what we wanted to do is to artificially bypass this break in information flow by adding new synapses in the circuit and seeing if we can actually overcome this deficiency mm -hmm. and uh, very ni it, it worked very nicely even too nicely so it turned out that our new synapses were not only bypassing this break in information flow they were actually amplifying weaker signals in the circuits because of all kinds of connections that happened to be happened to form between the neurons in that specific circuit so while we were building this bypass we actually discovered another way in which it could help those worms over overcome uh, damage that they went through. And it just sounds like it's such a fascinating sandbox. I mean, I guess the, the, the two questions that I had, I just wanted to invite you to, if there were other interesting behaviors or interesting experiments that, that you've done, um, to just to share those. So why don't we, we start with that? Yeah, so the basic uh, experiments uh, with those uh, synapses was to see if we, you know, you could cause a worm, uh, if, if you just expose the worm to something nasty, it would back off, it would run mm -hmm. away. Mm -hmm. But can you cause the worm to just run into that bad thing? Mm. You know, it's completely counter-instinctual. 
And uh, that was the first you know, synapse we added to the system and it worked very well, surprisingly well. So uh, despite you know, what you would think, maybe even through plasticity or something, that the worm would try to kind of offset these effects, it actually, you know, the, those synapses are so strong that it actually causes the worms to do things that are completely bad to it. And then um, another area we're interested in is learning. So worms, you, you know, you mentioned plasticity and everything. So also worms can learn and you can teach, you can train them to um, change their attraction, for instance, to something, mm. uh, you know, to change their response to a certain odor from attraction to a repulsion if you expose that odor together with something bad. So now they know that, okay, this odor means something bad to me. It's not something I need to track. Um, so we try to kind of, instead of training them to avoid a certain odor, we try to do it with those synapses. So kind of, if you really want to put, to, you know, to, to stretch it, you can say that we're implanting a certain memory into them or certain, mm. you know, something into them. So since we know how the circuit works, we could guess where to insert those specific synapses to cause worms to now be repelled by an odor that they normally like. And that worked very well. And uh, we could also do the opposite, cause worms to, you know, still keep uh, moving towards an odor that they have learned is bad to them, but they just can't help themselves because of the wiring. So mm. the way we added those synapses causes them to just, you know, do those things. And um, one of the things we're trying to do now is to cause worms to act as a group, to mm. kind of aggregate and move together and coordinate their actions. And that can involve further, not just signaling within the worm, but maybe also signaling between worms. Mm. And you can add, you know, also to that, you can add artificial signaling between the worms. And, you know, the sky is the limit for those things. And do, do, the, do the worms currently coordinate in any way, or is this, would this be totally novel? So worms sometimes do, they don't, I wouldn't say they coordinate, but they sometimes kind of turn to cl t tend to cluster or, or aggregate a little, and that depends on all kinds of environmental things, like if oxygen levels are very high, like in the lab, because the worms normally live in the soil, and oxygen levels where they live are normally much lower than in the atmosphere. And, but in the lab, they have to be exposed to much higher oxygen levels. And so they tend to kind of cluster together to keep oxygen levels as low as they can, because then they kind mm. of... Uh, so there are certain instances where they do that, but I want to control it. I want them to, you know, aggregate no matter what the circumstances are. Just find each other and move together. Mm. And uh, this is one of the things we're trying to figure out how to do. Yeah, this is like, that's, that sounds really cool and i guess one <laughs> one thought that comes to mind and i i don't again this might be might be silly but yeah how many potential interventions it seems like a, a huge space i guess is what i mean that, that there's just so many different things that you could imagine doing you know you, you really have to be intentional in terms of we we want this behavior and then we have to use what we know about the, the connectome and, and its relationship to behavior to make these very intentional changes. Like what would happen if you just started kind of randomly inserting these connections? Is that, is that interesting? Is, would it just kind of break the, the worms or would it be very unlikely? Like if you were just to randomly change one, you know, base pair in a genome, that's just not going to do anything, right? Like a, essentially a random mutation, um, you know, will, will probably be to junk DNA. It's very unlikely to be beneficial. Right. And then, you know, and I, I guess I'm, I guess the question is, does that same relationship hold vis-a-vis -vis the connectome? Like if you have a random mutation in the connectome or, you know, kind of a randomly inserted connection or deleted connection, is that just most likely to do nothing, very, very unlikely to do anything useful? And then, you know, maybe once in a million, it will do something helpful. So that's a great question. And I think that if you do it to a human, nothing will happen. I mean, mm -hmm. If a, if a human loses 302 neurons at this instance, most likely no one, no one would notice. Right. And it would have absolutely no effect. But in worms, every neuron, every synapse matters. So it's sufficient to just, you know, add one of those synapses that I'm adding and you already get a behavior, a very salient behavior effect. Hmm. So the, the question of randomness is great because that allows you to also kind of screen 
for new kinds of connections you would have never guessed because right now I have to do a kind of rational decision. I have to say, okay, I know this and that about the circuit. I can guess that if I add the synapse here, it would do this and that. And then I just test it. But if I want to come up with something new and I have no idea where I should add those synapses or I'm not familiar enough with how the circuit works, etc., or I can't even imagine what would happen if I add that synapse, then randomization is a great solution because, and if I have the ability to do it at a large scale, to add lots of different random synapses in different worms, then I have a very powerful tool. Mm -hmm. So we're actually uh, trying to do this in two very different ways. One of them is going back to what you said before about computational models. So trying to do this with kind of worm simulations where you have this, this is completely virtual worm, but you can add new synapses randomly or wherever you want and see what the simulation tells you. You want a certain behavior, you run it through the simulation and then you see what kind of synapses you need to add theoretically to cause that behavior. And then you can really test them in a real world. Hmm. So that's kind of one approach. And the second one is trying to actually do this biologically. So we're trying to develop this method to really uh, come up with a very heterogeneous population of worms, each one having a different random synapse inserted between mm. all kinds of different pairs of neurons, and just trying to select worms that behave either in, in a certain way that you're, that you're looking for or just in a peculiar way, and then you know, trying to see what happened there. Right. Right. Yeah, no, that's, and it's all very controlled. So you can say, well, we just changed this one synapse and they're otherwise genetically identical worms and we see this different behavior. And, yeah. you know, and it's, it's, and it seems as though there might be another, I mean, this is somewhat related to the first instance, is you have a, a model of the worm and presumably the mo, I mean, this may be, I, I, I this is more of a question is the model has uh, a greater, or less confidence in some predictions than others, right? So you say, well, if I change this synapse, what's going to happen? And the model will spit out a prediction. I don't know if that comes with confidence bounds or not. Um, but one thing that strikes me as would be interesting would be to say, go to the areas of the model that have the least, where the model has the least amount of confidence, and then try it out in the real world, see what happens, and then use that to you know, improve the model. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. It's those places where the model is completely wrong that are most interesting perhaps because then you right. can really learn something new right yeah no that's that's very neat so um i want to get to to kind of some of the the bigger societal uh, questions but maybe just one more kind of scholarly or intellectual uh, uh digression first is that just again struck me as as i was working my way through some of your material is whether you think of this work that you're doing is related to this idea of kind of embodied intelligence that I've seen in other contexts where, you know, there's a there's, you know, thinking about abstract neural networks um, or the idea that intelligence can be fully instantiated, you know, in you know in in silica, is there's something wrong about that because really intelligence uh, arises at the interface of you know an organism and of course a neural network or you know biological neural network can be part of that, um, but there's a lot more going on. Is that was that a kind of background motivation for the the interest um, that you had, or do you see that as a distinct or kind of unrelated set of ideas? So I think it is related. I think I'm, I'm interested in intelligence in various different ways. So one of them is kind of the origins of intelligence, maybe. And mm. intelligence as we know it is biological. You know, the intelligence we were born with or exposed to is is all in biology. Maybe there are some other forms of intelligence out there that we're not just, just not aware of. And then we can, our, we ourselves are kind of, uh, you know, I don't know if we're actually there or we will ever be there. We want to create new things that have their own kind of intelligence. And maybe they're not biological, I don't know. But to me, a very basic question is, what is, you know, what is the basis of this intelligence? Where is it coming from? How did it start, etc.? And I think in worms, uh, we have a good uh, opportunity to kind of look back in time and, and look at very basic features of their behavior and abilities within the neuronal context, but also as part of a, an active body in the environment, um, and try to trace back those uh, you know, roots of intelligence. 
And also the idea that you can actually play around with the neural circuits of C. elegans and or of other creatures and add some kind of human design into the system is fascinating to me because that that begins to kind of you don't you don't have to struggle with the idea is it a computer is it a biological thing it's biology it's 100% biology but there's human design into it mm-hmm. and then you can it's a kind of cleaner question because then you can ask what can we consider as you know endowing something with intelligence and with all else equal all else being equal and uh, and of course then there are the questions of you know completely artificial intelligence within a computer or whatever and um, I'm still not sure if such an intelligence can exist I, I haven't made up my mind yet and I probably changed my mind a hundred times um, <laughs> But this all goes into this kind of interface between biology and human design, other forms of intelligence, etc. Yeah, no, it's it's a yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting kind of again just a, a, a real experiment, but an intersection of these various these various threads. So so thinking, I don't know if, if practically is is the right word, but um, you know thinking forward in terms of some of the implications of this research. So so one just question is. At the stage of development that that the techniques that you've put together so far are at, you know, could this in theory be implemented on a on a on a, a mouse in the lab, like uh, using Connexin and using the genetic markers that you've used, or or you know, is all of this like quite specific to C. elegans and maybe some closely related species? So I think it will get there eventually. Um, there are some, of course, differences between C. elegans and mice and. Uh, even technical things, but also more conceptual things. But I think it could be done, ultimately. Um, I mean, there are different applications here. First of all, there's the you know repair aspect of it, mm-hmm. which may be one day you know something that people will actually use uh, to you know deal with brain damage or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is the idea of you know, actually creating a new type of creature that has a certain mission or task that it has to complete, like a kind of biological robot. And the way, for me, it's easy to just limit myself to little worms and things that Mm -hmm. seem to be kind of harmless and, you know, Mm -hmm. nobody actually sees them, so they're fine. But still, you know, you have to take into account uh, more, uh, you know, extensive applications. Um... Definitely this whole area is, I think that's the the whole area of synthetic biology in general. I think that's a very important part of our future. And we have to prepare for it in all respects, ethically, society, you know, society, technically, etc. But I think it has a lot of promise and from many unexpected directions even. And uh, I think uh, the only way is to just at least start with something simple with with worms or things like that and try to come up at least with the questions or at least with the issues once you have something tangible to deal with yeah it's I th- one of the ways that that you described to think of the the research in, in in one of your papers was kind of evolutionary paths not taken yeah which i found very evocative it's kind of you could go back in time and say all right you know this, either this was a path not taken or it was an aborted path, like a, like a super smeller worm, right? Yeah. Um, like, why, aren't, why, why, why do we not see these? And, um, and that strikes me as both, um, in a way, it's, it limits the potential danger, I guess. Like a little robot, for example, like if, you, if, you, if one of these worms could be created um, so that it uh, preferentially fed on toxins or something like that broke down toxins in the environment and uh presumably that would not be beneficial for the worm it might be good for soil you know remediation or something like that so you wouldn't really have to worry about that worm uh getting out of control right like you'd pretty much have to manufacture that in the lab and then it would just kind of the population would die out because it had this trait that was not advantageous um whereas you know again you could imagine actually engineering one of these worms uh, in terms of their connectome that had certain behaviors that were actually 
advantageous in in the natural environment, and that it could, you know, kind of go out and 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 out compete the existing uh, C. elegans 1.0. Um, is that is that tr- should we should we be troubled by that possibility? Is that something that we shouldn't do for ethical reasons? Um, I'm just sticking with the with the case of C. elegans. You know, are are there do you think limitations on what we should and shouldn't be doing? Yeah, I think we, we should definitely be very careful because uh, it's, you have this butterfly effect. Even, you know, suppose in a certain area, a certain species of C. elegans out defeats all natural variants or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that kind of, you know, changes some kind of ecological niche and that changes some other thing. And, you know, it, you can have a very dramatic chain reaction out of something like that. On the other hand, biology is a very robust system and it, mm-hmm. it's built on these kinds of changes and dramatic events and kind of uh, flip of the dice. Um, but we have to, so we have to find ourselves somewhere in the middle. We have to be responsible on the one hand. We can also, another way to look at it is, you know, people are realizing that biological diversity is, seems to be shrinking due to all kinds of things that we are doing or other stuff. And synthetic biology is a form of diversification. Hmm. So, um, and of course, we have the most important thing to realize is once you're doing, once you're building biological systems, there's a lot, you want the system to be autonomous, but, and it's going to be autonomous whether you like it or not. And mm-hmm. even in very, in ways that you don't even think uh, could happen. So, you, maybe you build a new kind of C. elegans and these C. elegans undergo some kind of evolution and they themselves now become something different. And mm-hmm. so I think that, uh, at least, you know, at a very, very primitive level, we have to think of all kinds of killer switches and all kinds of mechanisms that would... I think that, you know, uh, biological security is going to be a very, very big thing mm. in the very near future. So like you have cyber companies today... If I were an investor, I would go for biological security. So all kinds of techniques to protect DNA, real DNA, from being either sequenced or I don't know what, or all kinds of ways to identify synthetic organisms. And there are all kinds of new and amazing uh, methods to do that. Um, So this will be part of the deal, the biosecurity part, uh, real technology that is intended just to make sure that you can somehow even if you want to let these things kind of uh, and you know be part of the environment and everything that you have some kind of escape route at some point hmm. you know the, just the the biodiversity questions is is a fascinating one so so you know there are there will be some environmental ethics um some folks in environmental ethics that would say that we have an, uh, that we have certain obligations not to allow, for example, species to go extinct. Right? That we ought, we ought to, as a society, any individual society or collectively, we ought to be concerned that our actions through climate change or habitat destruction or um, ocean acidification that this is going to lead to potentially mass extinction, and that and the and the um, the problem of extinction is both that it could hurt people, right? It could create ecosystems that are less resilient and, um, and therefore cause, you know, a collapse of an ecosystem or, or harm a species that has a direct uh, benefit for humans, like um, in the ocean, say, a, a food source. And that provides a kind of a human-centered reason to worry about extinction. But there are um, arguments that we have kind of obligations even apart from any effects on human beings, not to kind of run roughshod over the natural world and cause a bunch of extinctions. So, um, so this is kind of a bit of a setup, but if we imagine that we do have those obligations, somehow we have, uh, that we really ought not to uh, cause these kinds of massive disturbances and disrupt ecosystems and, and cause extinctions. Would that then lead to a and and the reason is for biodiversity that biodiversity is a good thing. Uh, you know, I wonder if there is a kind of a related obligation that might that we might think that and similar if biodiversity is a good thing, I guess is the way the argument would go. We actually have an obligation to go out and explore the possibilities 
of synthetic biology and and you know uh, of various sorts, including of the of the connectome, and that that is part of how we discharge our obligation to to enhance biodiversity is not just a negative obligation to not destroy biodiversity, but a positive obligation to go out and create diverse things that we then um, add to the to the world, of, not necessarily release into the wild, maybe, but at least add to the, the world of possibilities that um, that exist in, in biology. That is a very, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, I, I strongly believe in that. I do, you know, you always, you never know. Maybe, maybe you have these good intentions, and in the end, it will blow in your face or something. But, right. but you know, as far as we can tell, I think that's a major reason why we should pursue this. Hmm. Yeah, well, it's it's fascinating work. You know, um, I, 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 the, I'll just final thing I'll just note is I was reading through one of your papers, and 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 it described the idea of like a, a worm that you could engineer that would go in. Um, and you know you could kind of put it in someone's body, and it would perform like a little procedure. You know, maybe it could go in and repair an artery or something like that, and come out. And I just thought this sounded wonderful, completely non-invasive. And and I told my girlfriend, and she was like horrified by, by the <laughs> idea. So how this lands, I guess, is going to depend on uh, you know some person personal characteristics. But I think there's a lot of I mean, it's fascinating intellectually, and it, and it does seem like there's a lot of. Um, important real-world consequences to it as well. So it's been a lot of fun uh, talking about talking about your work here. Yeah, thank you very much. I okay. really enjoyed it. <laughs>